0: Lend me your ears. It's the final part of Ancient Roman Whiskey. I'm here, of course, DJ Gagnon, along with my co host with the most, Mark Rossetti. You know, you're way
1: too excited saying that it's the last episode. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, We need to be sad. This is the somber occasion.
0: uh, It is a somber occasion, but knowing Mark, he will find a way to drag up more episodes tangentially (laughs) related to ancient Rome in in season five. So don't worry. It's not over. Just like Rome. Rome is eternal. Roma invicta. Rome eternal, Rome invincible. It's so true. Uh, But we are here to wrap up our initial set of ancient Rome episodes Uh, and of course we are, this is our penultimate episode of season four. Uh, Mark kind of buried the lead, uh, last week and let y'all know we're coming back for a season five, but, uh, we do. I don't want our listeners to get worried. It's true. It's true. Uh, but we do have, uh, one more episode this season. We'll be coming at you next week. Uh, and then we'll be taking a few weeks off. Uh, We haven't determined exactly when yet, but we'll still drop some trailers into the feed and uh, get some good stuff out there for you. But before we end this season, how you doing? What, what you been up to this week, buddy?
1: Oh, Lord, above. It's It's been a week. Um, you know, the, the old man damn near killed himself last week, so he's out of the hospital and recovered and appears to be okay. So that's <laughs> all good. Um, you know, if he doesn't kill himself, he's going to kill me, one or the other. So uh, he came over, watched the race on Sunday. Uh, NASCAR is back. I know we've talked about NASCAR in some of our adult fandom episodes. Was not really a fan of the less than a quarter mile track thrown into a football stadium. Um You know, I was trying to explain this to the wife with the Olympics because the Olympics are going on and I don't know, maybe season five we'll do an Olympics episode and I can just bitch for three and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're following any of the Olympics or if you're like me and you've had your large television commandeered by your wife and your cat uh, and you're forced to watch the Olympics, China – well, they decided they wanted the Olympics. They decided they were going to have the Olympics and then they decided they were going to figure out the venues later. So there's a ski jump in the middle of a nuclear facility, amongst other things. And I was trying to explain to the wife, when you buy a video game, a sports video game, especially racing or baseball or I'm sure football and soccer are the same thing, you get a number of real world locations and then you get a number of fantasy places. Just made up bullshit that could only exist in a video game. The Olympics is just a bunch of fantasy bullshit locations. Well, years and years ago, if anybody's ever played NASCAR 2005 for the PlayStation 2, the last good NASCAR game, in my opinion, and (laughs) I've played them all, folks. Uh, But they had what was called Dodge Raceway Stadium. It was a very short track around a football stadium. We had that this weekend in real life. Wasn't really a fan. The racing was pretty good. The atmosphere sucked. There was, like, nobody there because it's L.A. and Nobody gives a shit. There was a bunch of shitty-ass concerts, uh, the hype, all the grand marshals that they had. I couldn't even name who half of them were. I never heard of them. It was just a big L.A. Band-Aid on a sport that grew out of the South and out of moonshine. So, racing was fine. The show itself, not good. Don't recommend. Fair. Uh, but that was the main thing this weekend. Uh, what about you? And, you know, I, I don't want to be this guy... But I believe you have a little bit of a mea culpa here this
0: week. I do. I do. I actually felt so uncomfortable uh, doing the edit last week that I did remove it from the episode, but I'm not removing my mea culpa.
1: Um, so I did, <laughs> you actually cut it out. I did. Oh, uh, and the, see that shows you, I haven't listened to the episode this week, but <laughs> the edited version. So the, the
0: only reason I cut it out is because you actually made a joke afterward that didn't relate to it and was really good. And there wasn't anything funny in the actual uh, the thing, so I was able to keep your joke in um, but I did refer to myself as Canadian American last week and then did some research and realized actually that's not true at all and is cultural appropriation so um, yeah, mea culpa I am not a Canadian American I am American, uh, I was born here, uh, both, both of my parents were as well so uh, my mea culpa is directly related to something that I decided I was just too uncomfortable to
1: keep in last week uh, but and you know, nonetheless, if, I did if we, say it. If we ever get our SoundCloud off the ground, uh, I have this idea in my head that it might not be the entirety of the SoundCloud, but at least one of the lists should just be bloopers. Yeah, and I think that would be a great blooper, not so much because of what you said or, or didn't say, but because of I was just audibly silent because I was very confused. <laughs> it takes a lot to make me go speechless. And the little hamster in my head was like, the fuck did he just say?
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I did too, because I like it came out of my mouth. And I'm like, no, you meant to say you have like Canadian descent, like you you meant to say that maybe your great grandparents came from Canada. You're not supposed to say you're Canadian American because that's not true.
1: But hey, you know, I got to give your great grandparents and your bloodline and everything else. Uh, your motherland, uh, a shout-out, because, again, the wife's got Olympic fever, so we she's had it on, and I predicted it. The American women, three straight games, did not, in hockey, did not let a goal go. They beat Switzerland, they beat Canada, and they beat somebody else. I think it was the Czech Republic. They had outscored everyone, uh, what was it, 17 to nothing. I think it was 16 or 17 to nothing. And then last night, as we're recording this, they played Canada and they got their teeth fucking kicked in. (laughs) So good on your ancestors. Nice. Uh, But other than that, it's just been a
0: lot of Pokemon playing and uh, we've been getting our second bedroom ready for painting this weekend. So I've got a little bit of mudding to do. Well, actually, no, all the mudding is done. I got a little bit of sanding to do. And then I gotta like vacuum up and, and set out all the tools because I got a buddy coming over this weekend to help me paint that room and just knock it out. Hopefully in one weekend, we'll we'll see. We gotta do some priming and some painting. So I guess it all kind of depends on how quickly the primer dries.
1: Yeah, primer sucks. Uh speaking both as a car guy and as a miniature figurine painter. The primer's yeah. just not good. Uh you know,
0: I I just keep Picking colors that are lighter than the color that would be underneath them So I really do need the primer But it's a pain in the ass Yeah, I don't recommend it It's fine, we'll get there uh, My My biggest thing is that I very carefully tape the ceiling Because I know that I'm going to fuck it up And half the tape fell off the ceiling So i got to fix that
1: uh, before my friend gets there on Saturday If you go into my office uh, at my work, there are still some overruns on the ceiling trim because the wife and I actually painted it. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, I I can appreciate that. A little patience goes a long way. Unfortunately, I was not. That was a virtue I was not born with. So
0: I I just don't have an exact enough of a hand to cut things in without tape. So I I don't I don't bother. But. Uh, that That's boring shit. Uh, more importantly, the Pokemon Arceus Legends game is amazing. And again, I
1: reiterate, game of the year. Yeah, hang on. Time out. I w- actually meant to ask you about this, and I'm glad you reminded me. I believe I saw a post on one of your various social medias that you've already completed it. The game is finished? Uh, no,
0: it's not finished. I just beat the main plot and saw the credits roll. So the game is finished. S- and it's been, what, a week? yeah i really like pokemon mark what do you want from me
1: now okay and i believe we've talked about this in one of our many video games slash console war episodes that i usually roll my eyes and just get vehemently angry when the kids these days claim the games are just too short and that you know we need longer this or longer that but if you've beaten that in a week i don't know homie Um,
0: well, it's been about, it was about nine days to beat the main plot. Um, and I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to embarrass myself here, but it was 38 hours and 50 minutes to beat the main plot of the game.
1: All right, hang on. I'm going to pull up my trusty cell phone based calculatron here. So we're going to round up. We're going to say 39 hours. Mm hmm. 39 divided by nine, you said? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's only four four to bit hours a day. It's actually yeah. not that impressive.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um but to be fair to this game, there once you see the credits roll, there's still about 30 hours of gameplay before you've completed. I mean, possibly even more, because I have to complete the Pokedex and do all sorts of crazy shit. So uh, I'm currently Legendary and Shiny hunting at the moment, uh, and I'm well over the 45-hour mark now. How how hard does it take to complete the Pokédex? There's only 151. Uh, like, I don't... No, there's way more than that, Mark. We've talked about this. There's so many Pokémon that they all can't fit
1: in one game anymore. Right, it's totally not just a plot to get you to buy two games.
0: No, they they don't even. They just legitimately say, "Hey, for this generation, we're only bringing like five hundred Pokemon. The the other four hundred are just gonna wait
1: for the next game." Uh, that sounds like a multi level marketing scheme to me. Which that could be a fun episode because, as you know, what is one of my favorite things in the world? Multi level marketing. No, Colts. <laughs> And if you go on a lot of, like, cult awareness and cult hunting and anti-cult websites, uh, Sensi and, what is it, Lulu LeMall, the, the legging company? Lulu Lemon. Yeah, them. They're both cults. So. Are they? They're considered cults. I don't know. I don't know anybody that sells either one of them. But huh. I want to, though. I want to meet somebody in a cult.
0: Uh, I mean, I did know somebody who sold Sensi for a while, and that they don't do it anymore, but I did... I think I have some Sensi lying around somewhere. Cool. If you
1: burn it, will the great leader come? I, I don't know who that is. Neither do I, but maybe he'll show up. Or she. <laughs> could be a woman. Well... I broke you with that one, didn't I? (laughs) You don't know where to go with this one, do you?
0: I don't. Mark, what are you drinking?
1: Well, uh, as I said, the old man came over this weekend, and so before he came over to watch the race, I knew that this uh, race on this fantasy track was going to be a shit show because while I like short track racing, I only like short track racing when it's done by cars that are designed for a short track, which this is, you know, cup cars aren't. So I went to the store, and I actually picked up myself a bottle of Sagamore Spirits Straight Rye Whiskey.
0: Because, DJ, did you know I like rye? I didn't know that. Can you tell me more about this drink that I've never had and I I didn't know you liked? I've never mentioned
1: this before. No. Um, But not only is it a rye, it's a limited run rye. It has a nice hand written label on the bottle. So my bottle came from Batch... Uh, 1-1 Alpha Motel, so 11 a.m., which is not the time. That's actually the alphanumeric code for the batch. Mm-hmm. It's bottle number 2,698, and it was bottled by, uh, well, the guy's signature is here, and I can only really make out, looks like Mike K, M-I and then a K. I can't read the rest of it. So, So we have that. And wouldn't you know who on the pony? It's a high rye. 95% is the mash bill. Uh, the other 5% is pretty much all malted barley. It is a little bit low proof, but that's not the worst thing in the world. It is uh, 41.5% ABV. So as near as makes no difference, 83 proof. Uh, it's aged in charred oak casks, new, not older ones. I know we've gone over that in a few of the uh, previous episodes. It's from Indiana, USA. And while it does not have an official age statement, the Sagamore Spirits website claims that it is at least four years old per batch. So make of that what you will. It's got a darker color to it. It kind of looks almost like copper piping, like older copper piping that's starting to age. It's not like green or corroded or anything, but you know how copper looks when it weathers. Yeah. Overall, it has a really short, biting taste. You get a little bit of spice. You get a little bit of fruit on the nose, and then it goes a lot spicier in the middle. You get some, like, cloves, And almost like a cinnamony, peppery, just biting taste in the middle. And then it smooths off to the oak and some like fruity, almost citrusy flavors. And then it's done. So it's just a quick punch in the face. It's pretty well balanced. Um, A lot of the reviews online you'll see say that it's a light body. Ah. I wouldn't say it's a light body. It's smooth, but to me, it's definitely medium body. Like if you don't like wood and you don't like spice, you're not going to like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I freaking love it. Uh, I stumbled across it just by dumb luck. Uh, It's a little pricey in Pennsylvania. Even on sale, it was over $50. So it's probably pushing about 60 bucks a bottle regular price. But if... uh, you could splurge for something that might not be a everyday driver and you like rye. This is really fucking good.
0: That's awesome.
1: What about you, buddy? What are you drinking?
0: Uh, Oh, I went with the cocktail route because uh, some of us don't give up on the things we promise. So, um,
1: if you remember, I did give up. I I had said I was going to drink whiskey the whole way through. And then I didn't. Uh huh. -huh. (laughs) Excuses, excuses. Uh, So I
0: went with uh, the Golden Cadillac today. Have you ever had one of these? I
1: mean, I owned one. It was black and gold, but I I had a Cadillac. Oh, no, a cocktail. Lord, no, no, I've never had one of those. (laughs)
0: Uh, I've had
1: a real Cadillac.
0: So the Golden Cadillac uh, harkens back to the 1950s. Uh, It was created at Poor Red's Barbecue, uh, located in El Dorado, California, uh, during um, it, El Dorado is a gold rush town, uh, and the uh, the guy known as Poor Red uh, won the bar in a dice game, and uh, he had a golden Cadillac. And he and uh, his bartender decided they wanted to create a signature cocktail uh, that matched, uh, you know, the the, the Cadillac. Uh, so they made this signature cocktail and, uh, it's the, ba- the, the barbecue place is still there. It's a destination for, for these, uh, drinks. It sells thousands of them. Uh, and, uh, it, it's a pretty great cocktail. Um, it's kind of one of those, uh, it, well, it, it is, it is a milk or slash cream cocktail, uh, and it's one of those that has e- an equal ratio. So uh, a good comparison would be a grasshopper. It's actually very close to the grasshopper. Uh, but a golden Cadillac is uh, an ounce and a half each of Galliano, uh, white crumb to cacao, and uh, cream or milk. Um, if you want, you can back off. Uh, if you use milk, it's an, it's an ounce and a half. If you use cream, it's just an ounce because, you know, who wants to drink that much cream? Holy crap. Uh, and then you shake it up, uh, pour it into a martini glass or, or a cocktail glass, and you garnish it with some nutmeg uh, to amp it up a little
1: bit. I really like nutmeg, Mark. It just it goes with everything, and it's wonderful. As much as I like to shit on you and some of your tastes, nutmeg is actually really good.
0: It is. It's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so you basically get a cocktail that is a lovely pale... Uh, like orangey golden color, um, it, it, it's really fun. Uh, I I really like it. Galliano is one of my favorite uh, liqueurs, and there just aren't a lot of cocktails that use it. You know, there's the Galliano Stinger, which I reviewed back in season one. Um, there's the Harvey Wallbanger and all of its variants, like the what is it, the slow screw up against the wall, uh, and then there's the the Golden Cadillac. Uh, so hi- highly recommend trying it out. If you can get your hands on Galeano, uh, they do sell nips of Galeano. I have yet to see one in the wild. I've only ever seen it online. Um, but if you can get yourself... If you really like Galeano, go get yourself the big bottle because uh, it, it's an impressive bottle to have in your bar. Uh, but if, you, if you're if you just not sure you haven't had it before, try to find a nip or try to find the 375 mil bottle. But both of those are, are pretty rare to find out in... In the wilderness.
1: Now, I just want clarification here. Uh Uh-huh. So, you are drinking a drink that came about because a professional gambler rode into an abandoned boom town, (laughs) won the deed to a bar in a dice game, and was driving a custom Cadillac into a town... Named after, well, that the highest Cadillac's model is named after. Uh huh. God damn, that's such an American story. It is. It's I a, love this fucking country so much sometimes. <laughs> I thought you would particularly enjoy this story, which is why I pulled it up for you. I mean, that is like Star Wars Han Solo shit, but real. It is. Or at least, you know, into the folk mythology of the area anyway.
0: And, and the fact, uh, I. I I really like the fact that um, because the Golden Cadillac took off as a as a as a popular cocktail uh, for a while, this like barbecue place was the leading uh, consumer of Galliano liqueur in North America.
1: Oh, I could fucking believe that.
0: Yeah, it's really, it was just really funny to find out. Like, you know, people ca- came from all over and you could still, I mean, I don't I don't know. I haven't checked to see if they made it through COVID, but uh, it, it's like a, de- a destination to go have a golden Cadillac at this place.
1: Now, what year did you say this all was? 50 what? 1950. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Some of those post-war caddies. I could see it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I could see it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty
0: easy cocktail to come up with at the time, right? Because this was the era where the Brandy Alexander was really popular um, and all of the various Alexander variants, right? Um, you know, there, there was a cognac variant, a gin variant. So they basically just took the Brandy Alexander and uh, ripped out the brandy and, and dropped in Galliano and some nutmeg. <laughs>
1: I like it. So yeah, make a golden Cadillac. I might, maybe that might be one of our trailers. Maybe for one of our trailers, we should make uh, a cocktail. The other one has, has suggested.
0: I like that. I I could do the, um, what's the one that has the wine that you really like? The New York sour, the New
1: York sour, baby. I was making them at Conrad's over the weekend. I was actually selling them and people are like, what the hell is this? (laughs) So, uh, they're coming back slowly, (laughs) but surely I'm bringing them back.
0: Uh, I unfortunately didn't know what day Mark was uh, working, so I couldn't uh, you know, jam on the touch tunes, all the Pokemon mm-hmm. themes I wanted.
1: See, you would have got booed, though. We actually had a crowd this weekend, and... I mean, it was annoying for me until the end of the day, because the tips were actually decent, but they kind of had Olympic fever, so... They had the Olympics on, but hey, whatever. It made them happy. They bought a lot of New York Sours. They bought a lot of Midori Sours, which... I, think just from, I mean, I think just from mixing them, I think I have diabetes because they're so sweet. But uh, hey, uh, the ladies liked them and they tipped well, so and they didn't cause trouble. So good on them. I love me a Midori Sour. Buddy, take us into whiskey news. All right. So I was trying to tie something into Valentine's Day and whiskey and blah, 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 because this is going to be the last episode we drop before Valentine's Day. Yeah, and I wasn't really getting anything, but uh, I came across an ad for a special that's being run by Shot Bo- Shots Box. Easy for me to say. And are you familiar at all with Shots Box, DJ? Because I wasn't. No, but I what is it?
0: I've been looking for a, a like a box or something. <laughs>
1: There's a lot of ways I can go with that, I've but I'm gonna save you the editing. have been looking
0: for a cocktail <laughs> slash whiskey slash tasting box for a while. Get your head out of the gutter and tell me well, what the hell shop look, is.
1: Look no further, good sir, because I have found it Uh Shotsbox is a bi-monthly subscription service that offers arrays of shot-sized craft distilled liqueurs from local craft artisan and small batch spirits and distillers, uh, both of the small business variety and top national names. Curated by taste makers and delivered nationwide, Shotsbox is best known for top-rated whiskey subscriptions. Uh, Both the Whiskey Club and the Whiskey Tasters Club are under the Shots box labels. I don't know what the difference is between the Whiskey Club and the Whiskey Tasters Club. That seems like a really obscure delineation. Uh, It's been featured in Forbes, Thrive, Goble, uh, Traveler, Rolling Stone, and The Chive. The Chive is still a thing. Holy shit. I've lost all faith in humanity um but w- shots box provides a new way to try spirits, discover favorites, learn how to properly taste liquors and gain access to full bottles of spirits that are not accessible anywhere else. So, uh I went on their that's their official press release, I went on their website. They have a few signature shots box because what's interesting is while they advertised a whiskey club, they advertised a whiskey taster's club. You can get basically whatever you want. There's a gin box. There is a vodka box. There's a tequila box, if you hate yourself. They are still selling leftovers of the holiday dessert shots box. Uh, So you have all that. But then they have cocktail kits. You have a champagne cocktail kit where you get a little bottle of champagne, some sugar cubes, a glass, a... uh, Mixing card, etc. And DJ, they must be listening to this podcast. They must know that you and I are are, are fighting on the regular. Mm-hmm. Because they have not one, but two different old-fashioned cocktail kits. The only difference between the two, one contains four nips of rye whereas the other one contains four nips of mezcal. Ooh. Yeah, I knew you'd be all about that. I really like that. It also comes with uh, extracts, syrups, your measuring spoon, sugar cubes, garnishes, and your recipe card. Uh, The entire thing comes in, it looks kind of like a really fancy Altoids can that says old-fashioned cocktail kit on it. Uh. It's 50 bucks, which is not actually terrible considering everything you get in it, and it would be every other month, so what's 50 times 6, it's 300 bucks for the year if you were to subscribe to this, and again, even if you're not a whiskey fan, although if you're not, I don't know why the fuck you're listening to this podcast, but even if you're not a whiskey fan, you can get gin, you can get vodka, you can get uh, different holiday ones, you can get tequila. Some of the different kits not only have a bunch of different nips and tastings, some of them have shot glasses, some of them have recipe cards, some of them have sugar cubes and syrups. A lot of them have all of the above in different combinations. And not only can you order one for yourself, if you want to gift one to somebody, uh, you can. You could subscribe for an entire year. You could subscribe for half a year. You could just get one box just to try it. So if you punch in Shots Box, it comes right up. It's based out of Los Angeles, and it's pretty interesting, actually. I may try this going forward for the new year. So, And it looks like, actually, they sell entire bottles as well. I haven't gone through their actual shop page, but it looks like you can buy fifths and handles of different things which is smart marketing. You know, you get a little nip of it in your kit. Hey, I really like that. Oh, here, we have a handle of it by this.
0: I love that. So do I actually, <laughs> you know, we've been tossing around the idea of, of doing some sponsored stuff here and there. Maybe we can, uh, I wonder what would it, what it would take to like do an affiliate thing for, for ShotsBox.
1: Hey, we could send them an email. The worst they could say is no. Yeah, Exactly. And I mean, hey, I'm a fat bald man. I'm used to rejection. What uh, what are you doing for Tools of the Trade this week, buddy? Well,
0: we've been doing a lot of like cocktail ingredients and talking about alternatives this season in Tools of the Trade. So I figured I'd talk about uh, some dairy alternatives and when to use what. Okay, I can dig that. So uh, I really love uh, milk drinks. Um, as somebody who's got some... Some issues with acid reflux, uh, having something kind of base in a cocktail like milk or cream uh, definitely kind of offsets some of the acid churn that you're going to get from the alcohol. So, uh, you know, if if I'm having a rough week, my acid's kind of going bad, I I might make a milk drink and and they're really great. So um, I have a privilege, which is that I am not lactose intolerant. I can drink as much milk as I want within reason, and, you know, I'm not going to get sick, Uh, but there are uh, a lot of people with food sensitivities out there, so I thought I would take a bit, and uh, I I read up a little bit about this, and there's one article from Punch um, that talks about uh, data science and how to use dairy in cocktails, and I'm not going to drain this article just because they do talk about milk and cream, but they also talk about... Uh, DIY way, like making your own way, um, using kefir or yogurt and buttermilk, uh, even doing some fat washing with butter or cheese. Um, this is pretty crazy stuff, and I, I don't think it's stuff you can easily have on hand most of the time for your own home bar. So uh, I decided to kind of just go the dairy alternative route, uh, and that's your your oat milks, your coconut milks, your uh, almond milks, things like that. So uh, I do definitely recommend uh, checking out that article on Punch if you're looking to get a little crazy with your cocktails. If you're feeling kind of bored, and you want to try something new. Uh, but I got to be honest, I've never had kefir in my house. Uh, it's supposedly a, uh, a a fermented milk liqueur. Um, so or something to think about. I, I know kefir is used in other areas of cooking as well. It may not actually be a liqueur, so I might have just stuck my foot in it, but that's fine. Uh, so let's talk about when to use what. Uh, so I feel like a lot of people have been talking about coconut milk, which, strictly speaking, isn't really milk and usually is a little bit more clear and liquidy than milk. Um, but it's fine. Uh, I, I feel like the best place for coconut milk are things that are tropical. Your tiki drinks, your pina coladas. um, You know, maybe if you traditionally... I've seen some recipes for strawberry daiquiris that add a little bit of milk to kind of do a strawberries and cream twist. Uh, So that might be a good place for coconut milk. Um, You know, there's the the flavor that you get from coconut too that isn't as present in the other milk alternatives. So you want to consider that. Um, But I feel like coconut milk... Uh, can be used in in some of the similar places where aquafaba is used instead of egg whites, uh, and and you can do do some really cool things with it. Um, When you are looking for something uh, that's a little bit more towards the traditional side, you you might be making a grasshopper, a brandy Alexander, a a golden Cadillac. um, You don't really want that coconut taste, right? Galliano and coconut I'm sure you can make something there, but you're, again, you're heading towards tiki culture. You're not really making, you know, a traditional 1950s American drink. So I would recommend uh, pairing something more like almond milk or cashew milk. Um, you, You get a little bit of the nutty flavor, but it's not overpowering. Uh, oat milk is also a really good alternative to, to the nut milks. I know some people have tree, tree nut allergies and stuff like that. So, um, oat milk has become pretty popular lately in cocktail culture. Uh, it's, it, there isn't a, a ton of, uh, allergies to it. You know, granted without your potentially leaning into, uh, gluten sensitivity, you're not going to win them all folks. Um, but with oat milk, you you get, uh, you get a little bit closer to milk, a little bit more closer to that flavor profile. So it's going to go well with, um, you know your your creme de, de this and your creme de that's, so your, your creme de cacaos, your creme de menthe, um, your creme de violettes, that kind of stuff. Uh, if you are making something, Mark and Mark's talked about the peanut butter whiskey before. If you're gonna make like a uh, a peanut butter whiskey chocolate cocktail. Maybe you want to kind of make a variant on a mudslide. That's where you can kind of pull in your almond milk or your your uh, cashew milk. Get some nutty flavor going in there. You can kind of get a nice peanut butter cup flavor going. Uh, so it just gives you some some options. Um, there's some other stuff out there in terms of milk. Uh, use your own judgment as you go. Uh, you know. Depending on how thick it is, depending on what it is, you're you're gonna want to maybe figure out how to reduce it a little bit if you want to get that that cream texture palette. Because really, at the end of the day, a milk drink is about texture and it, it more than it is about flavor. So, uh, if you're if you're making an egg drink, you want to try to get close to that texture a good way of getting to that texture is potentially introducing a little bit of egg white or aquafaba into it. So if you're using something that's really liquidy, like a coconut milk, maybe throw in like half a tablespoon of aquafaba to, to get that velvety texture you're looking for. So there you go. That's Tools of the Trade this week.
1: I can dig it. Of course, you know, I, I can hear the wife secretly... Having a glass against the window because you were talking about peanut butter whiskey and mudslides. So <laughs> she's gonna be scribbling down furiously almond milk on the next grocery list, and now I know why. Yeah, I mean I know mudslide isn't really based in
0: whiskey, but you know who the who the hell cares? Peanut butter whiskey, some chocolate, um, you know, s- some almond milk. I'm sure it would make a pretty tasty drink.
1: I actually have a handle upstairs because she begged me to buy it when I bought my rye, but she hasn't opened it yet. Of double chocolate, dark chocolate vodka that actually isn't pinnacle. So that with a little peanut butter whiskey could be fun.
0: That's impressive. So, Mark, it's the end of ancient Rome.
1: It is a friend of the show, Allie, who's been, you know, one of our guests. She was very impressed with you, and she told me to extend her kudos to you that you were able to keep me to three episodes. <laughs> Uh, she said that you have done the impossible, so salute, sir. <laughs> well, thank you, Allie. <laughs> um, no, it's going to be a lighter episode this week. It's going to be a shorter episode this week. We've unpacked a lot the last two weeks. Uh, even I can recognize and understand that. So we're going to talk about some of the lasting impressions, some of the fingerprints. We're going to do three topics, at least for my end of it, we're going to do three topics. The things that Rome left behind, the things that Rome is still famous for today, and of course there is some overlap there, I understand. And then we're going to have some fun with some trivia, some lesser known Roman facts. So let's just jump into it. The things that Rome left behind. This weekend coming up is, of course, DJ's favorite non-recognized holiday. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Is it? It is. Huh. I thought it was last weekend. No, nah, that's why I made this show because I knew you wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> uh, and as, for those of you like DJ who don't watch football, what's the one thing the Super Bowl is named is known for? Roman numerals. It's pretty much still the only consistent usage of Roman numerals, with a few others dating and what's up. Um, you know, for movies and things, you'll see like 20th Century Fox, and then there'll be the year written in Roman numerals. Uh, If you don't know, the Romans had their own numeric system. The biggest difference between Roman numerals and Arabic numerals, which are what we all use today, is the Roman numerals didn't have a zero. Why? They just didn't. They didn't need to hold places, apparently. It's an oversight, admittedly. Even me, the biggest Roman fanboy that there is, can't argue that. But they may do, as they often did. So, of course, you know, it's often I's, you know, one is I, two is two eyes, three is three eyes. The one fun thing that's a common misconception is, you know, the, the main way to write four is I, V, right? One before five, one mi- five minus one, because yeah. V is five. You could actually have four I's. That was also acceptable, so likewise, instead of, say, 34, which would be XXXIV, because X is 10, so three Xs, and then five minus one, you could have XXXIIII
0: That's terrible. That's <laughs> bad, and Rome
1: should feel bad. I believe we're on Super Bowl 56, which would be L... V I L is 50 and then five one. So it's just basically uh, addition as you go, but it's based off of what we now consider to be normal letters. So that's Roman numerals. I still like it. Um, you could usually tell who posts an episode of the podcast first. If we do multiple parts, because DJ uses Arabic numerals and I use Roman numerals,
0: <laughs> which
1: is kind of fun. Um, it's just, it's something that I, as usual with this podcast, we didn't plan, but I noticed it about halfway through season two and I've just kept rolling with it cause I think it's funny. <laughs> I don't think um, I've noticed that yet. I didn't think you did either. Cause you haven't said anything. about. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> so depending on where you go, the titles might be slightly different folks. Um, also gave us the Latin language, you know, uh, I used a very, app-centric from ProduceGo, the app, uh, very formal, very uh, high school edumacated version of Latin in our last episode, but Latin is still around, and, uh, you know, when I was first learning Latin, when I was a freshman in high school, it was sort of this wild idea, like, whoa, the entirety of the known world spoke the same language, if not as the primary language, Everybody spoke it as a second language. And nowadays, that's kind of old hat because you have that with English. Even if, you know, the majority of countries don't speak English as a first language, it's being taught in schools throughout the world, especially now with the the European Union. So we're kind of seeing sort of the same thing again. So it's not nearly as impressive. Uh, But Latin, of course, spawned all of the Romance languages uh, you know, French, Italian, uh, not German. God no, <laughs> <laughs> Spanish. You know, basically a good chunk of what the modern world speaks is directly based off of Latin. And in many cases, a lot of the words, if they're not exactly the same, you put them next to each other, you could see the correspondence. And you have numerous saying, Latin sayings, that are just in part of daily, la- uh, you know, daily life for us. Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Carpe diem, seize the day. Mm. Uh, Tempest fugit. Yep, Tempest fugit, time flies. Weenie, weenie, weedy, weechi, I came, I saw, I conquered. Uh, So, uh, Latin is is still around. Latin is very important. Uh, You know, I know I'm a sap. I know I I stand the Roman Empire, as the kids say. (laughs) But if you're in school, take Latin, even if it's just for a semester it will give you so much of a better perspective on antiquities uh, the antiquity era and if you are studying history in any shape or form i it, it would just it'll help you out a lot that's my advice uh crucifixion is another thing that is still around and still studied today mostly because of religious iconography uh, but the romans they didn't invent crucifixion but they really liked it and contrary to what you may have seen from uh, many of the religious crucifixes that are around, there was more than one way to skin a cat, or in this case, crucify someone. You had the more traditional cross that we're all familiar with. You could be crucified that way. You could be crucified on that same cross, but upside down. Oftentimes, you were crucified on an X so that your legs were spread apart. Uh Prisoners were often required to carry the cross, but you didn't carry the whole thing like you might see in a, a Stations of the Cross play for the Catholic Church. You basically carried the cross piece, which they had sort of lashed to you. They tied it around with the ropes and you carried that. And usually the center bar was already up. It was already erect. And they would throw a rope over it and they would tie it to you and they would drag you up the cross to mount it so that you'd get all the splinters and everything in your back. Jesus. Um, Most of the time you were just lashed to it because, of course, the the main way to die from crucifixion is starvation, thirst, exhaustion, and then eventually asphyxiation because all the weight, weight is on your chest. Uh, But if you were nailed to it, your nails wouldn't go into your hands. Your hands are very fleshy. There's a lot of small bones. The nails won't stick. They would go into your arms or your wrists. And even if you were nailed, they would still be accompanied by ropes. So crucifixion is kind of fun. Uh, The Romans realized that it was a horrific way to die. I mean, most crucifixions lasted days. Like you'd go up on a Monday and maybe if you were lucky Wednesday, you'd be dead. Probably later. So because of that, if you were an actual citizen of Rome, you could not be crucified. That was only for the barbarians. And, and
0: Jesus, the, apparently.
1: Well, he was he was a Jew. He wasn't a Roman. I guess that's fair. That is a great segue, though, into our next uh, Roman remnant, <laughs> the Catholic Church. Uh, Christianity in all its forms, of course, as we talked about last week, was banned until 303 A.D., and the reign of Constantine the Great, because he saw a vision with a cross in the sky and the sign that in uh, the saying that in this sign you will conquer. He heard of the voice of God telling him that under the sign of the cross, he will conquer. So he ordered all of his men to paint crucifixes on their shields. And the legions were triumphant and Constantine became emperor. Uh, and it's really been around ever since. I mean, if you take... The Gregorian calendar at its face, which you shouldn't because it's wrong, <laughs> but and you and you accept the fact that Jesus was born in zero A.D., which doesn't exist. But if you take that all on its face, that means that Christianity, uh, in general, and the Catholic Church in particular, has been around for two thousand and twenty-three years, which is pretty ridiculous. Jeez, uh, that's bonkers. Uh, It's bonkers. The pope still carries the official title of Pontifex Maximus, which we've talked about, which was the head priest of the Roman Empire. So still technically, officially, the pope is the head of the religious order of the Roman Empire, which means technically the Roman Empire still exists in some form somewhere. Uh, St. Peter's Cathedral is built in Rome. It's an independent city-state. Latin is still the official religion of the Vatican city state. Just for what it's worth. Hmm. Uh, which is kind of fun. So that's another thing it's still around. Uh, another big thing that Rome left behind, quite literally, is Pompeii. The city, not the guy. We talked about the general last week. But the city, and I, I think pretty much everybody knows this story in one shape, way, or form, even if you're not a Roman guy. In 79 AD... Mount Vesuvius, which was a major volcano, erupted, and it completely wiped out uh, both Pompeii as well as uh, Herculaneum, which was a sister city. And because of the ash and because of the way the volcano and everything fell, we have all of these plaster casts, not just of bodies of people in various poses, just the way they died, but of little things, pottery, um, everyday utensils, furniture. There's the famous picture, there's a loaf of bread from a bakery that actually has the little indicia in it. The guy used to use his insignia ring uh, when the bread was baking, so it's he has a maker's mark on all of his bread. All of the buildings have been excavated, which was a lot of fun when they excavated the brothel in Pompeii. And they realized that the, uh, oh God, what's the word I'm looking for? Mosaic. The tile mosaic is sort of a menu like at McDonald's. You would go in and like order a number three combo. Oh, wow. But you'd be doing this at a brothel. Uh, So, you know, stuff like that. Uh, There are roughly 1,500 bodies that are preserved in both Pompeii and Herculaneum. Of those, about 1,100 are the ash casts that are uh, the most famous that uh, you see photos of and that people go and and visit. Um, Vesuvius as a volcano is very fucking active. I want you to bear with me here for a second. If we just start in 79 AD, which is the famous one, It erupted in 79 AD, 203 AD, 472 AD, 512 AD, 787, 968, 991, 999, 1007, 1036, 1631, 1660, 1682, 1694, 1698, 1707, 1737, 1760, 1767, 1779, 1794, 1822, 1834, 1839, 1850, 1855, 1861, 1868, 1872, 1906, 1926, 1929, and 1944. Whew. Jeez. It's, and again, these are just the ones that we have recorded, documented proof of from various historians. Uh, the 1944 one was interesting because it actually erupted on uh, U.S. Uh, Army and Army Air Corps forces that were occupying Italy during World War II. So we have all these like journals of GIs being like, holy shit, what the fuck? <laughs> Same volcano that wiped a Roman city off of the map. Mount Vesuvius is just bad news. Okay, so things Rome is still famous for today, Uh, the circuses, which is, the circus in Rome is not the way we think of a circus today, but it means the same thing, it's just entertainment for the masses, it's a shit show, it's, you're going to see animals, you're going to see fire, you're going to see this, that, and the other thing, Uh, so you had numerous different types of games, you had gladiator fights, you had animal competitions, you had sideshows, you had the chariot races. You had these massive stadiums. The Colosseum the one that everybody remembers, but you would have the circuses. The Circus Maxima was the biggest, baddest one that was built in Rome, and it was pretty much was one of the first oval racing tracks in the world. It was built for chariot racing. Mm-hmm. The highest-paid athlete ever still to this day in history when adjusted for inflation was a chariot racer, Gaius Apelius Diocles. Do you know how much in today's money good old Gaius made in Rome? $100. $15.5 billion. Dollars. Sweet geez. The Romans, much like America, loved professional sports. Now, again, that's adjusted for inflation, but still. Likewise with this, I mentioned you had the gladiator fights. Now, let's just knock something out right here and now. They were rarely, rarely, and I mean less than 10%, probably less than 5% of all gladiator fights were to the death. That wasn't a thing. Hmm. The, The reason for that was gladiators were expensive, they were slaves. Their owners had invested a fuck ton of money in their training, in their health, in their well-being, in their food, in their equipment. It just didn't make sense to, you know, throw away such what was considered such a valuable asset in ancient Rome. It happened, but it was not every other fight like you see in modern media. And I'm going to break kayfabe here. A lot of the gladiatorial fights were worked. They were, <laughs> they were predetermined. I don't want to be that guy, but they would set up the pairings. They would set up the weaponry. Who's going to give a good fight? All right, boys, you got 15 minutes. You got 20 minutes. Entertain the masses. Panem et carcanem. It's Latin. Bread and circuses. How do you keep the people amused? You feed them. You give them entertainment doesn't matter who wins or loses. Hmm. Another thing that the Romans were known for, still known for, are the aqueducts. The Romans had running water. A lot of the upper class had what we would consider indoor plumbing. And how did that happen? They had these giant archways. The Romans didn't invent arches, the the architectural design of the arch, but they were the first civilization to really realize its full potential and use it to great uh, extent. So they built these giant they look almost like railroad bridges to us with arches made of stone and they carried running water in and this way cities and towns could get fresh water and you could use it for literally everything you use water for. They also had roads, you know there's a saying that all roads lead to Rome. And for a while it was true. They would just as the Romans would conquer land and expand, they would build infrastructure and they would build roads. And a lot of these roads are still there today. I have walked on Roman roads because they're not using asphalt. They're not using concrete. They use stone. They were built by engineers. They were made to last. So they're still around. And this way you can get your traders back and forth so you can bring the spoils of war from the lands that you just conquered. Likewise, you could bring grain and food from the capital to the outreaches of the empire. But more importantly... You can get the legions all over the empire if you need it. An army has to travel. An army needs roads to travel. That's why the Nazis built the Autobahn, which that'll be another episode we do later on. Legion itself, you know, great segue there. Depending on what point in Roman history you look at, they had between 4,200 to 5,200 legionnaires. And the legionnaires were your foot soldiers. You know, the helmet, the armor, the leather skirt, the shield, the gladius, the spear. They also had between 120 and 240 equites. They were cavalry. Everyone forgets the Romans had cavalry. They didn't use them a lot. They didn't use them extensively. They preferred horses to draw chariots, but they had what we would consider traditional cavalry. You had Centurions, who commanded roughly a hundred legionnaires, hence why Century 100. Uh, you had the Frumentari, who were sort of guerrilla warfares and spies, which really never gets talked about. Pretty much the only somewhat historically correct adaptation is actually in Fallout New Vegas, of all places. And they take a lot of liberties with it there, but that was a major thing. Uh, the legion was big and bad. They would form, you know, you had 4,200 people in a legion and you, you read Roman histories and they talk about the first legion, the 10th legion, the 13th legion. You know, they would send these guys in and they would form up in small groups and they would put their shields up in the big turtle formation. So you would not be able to hit them on three sides. They were completely immune. And as they advanced, they would throw their spears and break the enemy's defenses, and they would get in close with their Gladys, which was a short sword. Gladys in Latin literally just means sword. They were very unoriginal. Here's your sword, and then a name for it. Uh, and Gladys's are big and bad, uh, has an edge on both sides. Well, they're not big, they're short swords, but uh, they're very well balanced. They have an edge on both sides. They're an offensive weapon. They are the epitome of not come at me, bro, but I'm coming at you, bro. Yeah. So once you break the defenses with the aerial assault, boom, here they come. Uh, The gods and the planets in astronomy. DJ already talked about all that the first episode, but that's still around to this day. Pluto's a planet. Fuck you for saying otherwise. Uh, The Romans are known for orgies. Now, before you all just gasp and collectively clutch your pearls, they weren't all about sex. The Romans enjoyed a food and wine orgy as well, what today we would consider a bender, (laughs) where you just drink as much as humanly possible, where you eat as much as humanly possible, until basically you try to kill yourself or throw up or both. That was a big Roman thing. Uh, Togas. Who hasn't enjoyed a good toga party? Of course, only the men were allowed to wear togas. And some of the more traditional togas that we think of today were the more formal ones that only the Senate and the upper classes were allowed to wear. But the toga, the formal Roman attire, still around today, still thought of very well today. Let's get into some trivia. Are you ready, DJ? Let's do it. The Roman Empire was covered in graffiti. (laughs) Nice. And you know what's even better than that? What? It was incredibly vulgar graffiti. There are excavations of Hadrian's Wall, which we talked about last week, covering uh, England to keep the Scottish out. There's just a bunch of penises drawn on it, <laughs> <laughs> even two thousand years ago. Uh, the there's the four what we would consider to be your mama jokes. Do you know what the biggest insult was in the Roman Empire, DJ? No. You would threaten to face fuck someone. <laughs>
0: what?
1: You would force someone to perform fellatio on you. That was the most indignant, insulting thing you could say to someone.
0: Are you telling me that, that the worst thing you could say to
1: someone in Rome is literally suck my dick? No, I'm going to make you suck my dick. <laughs> Because oh there God. were slaves that would suck your dick. But that was the thing. As much as the Romans loved sex, they viewed oral sex for both men and women. They viewed it as very demeaning. It was something for slaves to perform. It was something for what we would consider uh, subs to this day to be to perform. It was often said that if you were someone who, in, who performed oral sex, you had bad breath. So that was basically the biggest insult. Like, ah, yeah, he gives blowjobs. It <laughs> wasn't even the whole gay straight thing because the Romans didn't care. The Romans had no real concept of sexuality. They would screw anything, they were very progressive. But just like, oh, wait, you suck it? No. <laughs> so there's a lot of that graffiti around. You also see references everywhere, even to this day SPQR, which literally stood for Senatus Populis Romanus which in English means for the Senate and the people of Rome. Basically, this was what you were doing everything for. You were going out and fighting the the barbarian hordes in Germania for the Senate and the people of Rome. You were paying taxes for the Senate and people of Rome. You were performing in the Circus Maximus for the Senate and the people of Rome. That was the be-all, end-all. And if you go to Italy to this day, you still see that carved everywhere, SPQR. Uh, I know how much you love poop, DJ. No. The Romans had bidets before bidets. Oh, that's good.
0: Because they had,
1: well, yes, because they had running water because of the aqueducts. So they didn't use any form of what we would consider to be toilet paper or toilet paper substitute. They would use literally the running water. And in some of the fancier bathhouses, they would use sponges. Unfortunately, they also used urine as a uh, like a dry cleaner for clothing. In in many public places, there would be large barrels for especially men to urinate in. They're basically public toilets and they would be taken and used for cleaning once they were full.
0: You know, it's a bad day when there's a a festival and it's, you know, they just serve asparagus. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, it's not all good news. Uh the women in ancient Rome often dyed their hair. They used goat fat and beechwood ash. Interestingly enough, I use a beechwood scented balm on my beard, which is kind of fun. Of course, uh, you the do. most the most popular colors for Roman women were of course blonde and red, so some things never change. <laughs> this one is kind of fun, uh, you know, just cuz joking about ads and advertising. Manscaping and shaving was a thing in ancient Rome for both men and for women. Hmm. Now, obviously, they didn't have a razor the way we think of it, but they would trim themselves up using sharpened seashells. And for the women, especially if you were going to be involved in an orgy, shall we say. Uh, shaping and different trimmings and things that we, you know, you think we have today. We think the adult film industry created today. No, the Romans were doing all that 300 years prior. Last but not least, the first ever shopping mall was built in the Roman Empire and in Rome itself. It was built by mighty Trajan, probably my favorite emperor. If it's not Caesar, it's Trajan. Uh, He completed the first shopping mall in 110 A.D., it was a large indoor-slash-outdoor market, had numerous vendors for pottery, for foodstuffs, uh, for livestock, and probably sold slaves, too. Uh, but it was your one-stop shop in one giant building within Rome itself. I love it. So that's kind of the fun. What do you have for us this week?
0: Well, I, I my first thing is a question, Mark. Okay. Maybe this is a stupid question, but I don't feel like Alexander the Great got mentioned.
1: Well, because he's Macedonian. Okay, so he's not Roman. No. Now, the Romans stole a lot. Alexander the Great is credited with creating Hellenistic thought, which was this idea that everything that is ancient Greek should be studied and should be revered. Because the Macedonians conquered the Greeks slash conquered the world. Uh... So Alexander the Great is uh, credited with creating the Hellenistic era. He's created with, uh, credited with creating literally hundreds of cities named Alexandria throughout the world. He was not a Roman. Uh, when the Roman Empire came to pass, they looked at everything he went and went, yeah, you know, he's kind of right. The Greeks are pretty cool. We're going to study slash steal a bunch of shit from them. And then eventually they burned Alexandria in Egypt and the library with it. Jesus, Which those two things aren't related, but that that happened. So no, Alexander the Great was not mentioned until just now.
0: Um, And then uh, there was a concept that I have found pops up in a lot of Western fiction that I thought would be interesting to talk about. And it's the concept of the Lost Roman Legion. Okay. So, uh, also known as the Legio Ninth Hispania or the Ninth Spanish Spanish Legion, uh, was a legion of the Imperial Roman Army that existed from roughly the first century BC until uh, at least one twenty AD. I'm using BC and AD, and I know you've been using a different nomenclature there, but um, I
1: chop and change. It's okay.
0: Uh apparently the Legion disappeared from surviving Roman records after uh 128 D, and there's no extant account of what happened to it. Now I did you know about this?
1: Yes. Um you often see it referred to it just simply as the ninth. Yeah. Um there are some wild theories out there. Um Most likely they ended up in Britain. They either were assimilated or they were destroyed or something happened to them in Britain. Because, again, we talked about last week uh, that, you know, the Scots were fucking insane. There's also some more credible theories that, you know, they disappeared within Germania that they were involved within one of the many revolts within Judea. Then you get some fucking weird ones. <laughs> um, I've seen people try to argue that they ended up in China and that they were like known to the Chinese. And that's why like if you Google did the Romans ever go to China, you get these people trying to claim that yes, there were, you know, Wall legionnaires in China. And people try to say it was the Ninth i don't i don't think so it's a fun myth if i had to guess i would say the records are probably just destroyed because i'm sure there were records at some point and that's why everybody is so fascinated with the ninth the romans as much as the romans hated the germans the romans were very german and that they kept paperwork on everything mm mm-hmm. But as you said, they just vanish. I think it was probably just destroyed in one of the many sacks of Rome that we talked about last year, from you know 400 onward. Uh, but that's not sexy, and that doesn't bode itself well to fiction.
0: Yeah, and and, and this is it, the topic of the lost Roman legion. The 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 fate of the Ninth is definitely something that pops up a ton uh, in. In Western fiction. So I, I picked out a few examples here. Um, th- this goes, uh, I mean, way, way back, but really uh, one of the earlier, more popularized uh, entries is a 1954 historical novel uh, by Rosemary Sutcliffe called The, the Eagle of the Ninth. Uh, and The Eagle of the Ninth, uh, it's a, a story about a young Roman officer trying to recover the eagle standard of his fathers. Uh, beyond Hadrian's Wall uh, The Eagle Standard was the standard Of the, the Ninth Spanish Legion Yes uh, And the Eagle of the North po- uh, Eagle of the Ninth, pops up uh, In quite a few different places There was a BBC series And a radio dramatization of it uh, There Was a uh, Novel by Marion Zimmer Bradley uh, In 1997, The Lady of Avalon uh, That uh, basically, has like tells the story of the Ninth being destroyed in battle with the na- Native Brits. Uh, uh, for any Jim Butcher fans out there, Jim Butcher's first book series, the Codex Alera, uh, which starts with the Furies of Calderon, uh, which was written between 2004 and 2009, uh, the the characters in the book are populated by the descendants of the Ninth Legion. Uh, that that series uh, was actually written. Jim Butcher wrote it on uh, a dare, uh, where uh, somebody told him that he should write a book series uh, that involved invo- two fantasy tropes. One was the lost Roman legion, and the other was an elemental system of magic. And that's how we got the Codex Alera. Uh, there th- a lot of references. The Eagle, a two thousand and eleven movie called The Eagle a 2013 book called The Eagle Has Fallen. Uh, And in 2017, Doctor Who did an episode called The Eaters of Light, uh, featuring the remnants of the Ninth Legion uh, fighting back an extra-dimensional being, uh, basically in Ireland, which is a really interesting take on it. Uh, So, yeah, uh, the Lost Roman Legion, the Lost Ninth, the Fate of the Ninth, it pops up a lot in fiction. Uh and last thing I wanted to pull in I pl- bring it back up from the first part of our three-parter here was the Aeneas um uh, that the Aeneid and the character of Aeneas because ultimately when you start researching Roman mythology uh it's really hard to find shit that isn't just rehashed from Greek um you know the, the 12 trials and tribulations of of Hercules comes back up a lot in Roman mythology but, I mean, let's be honest, it comes from Greek. Uh, all the gods basically came from Greek. Um, so I figured I'd just give a really brief, like, reason why the Aeneid is kind of a, uh, a really interesting piece of fiction if you want to learn about Roman history. Um, and it's because the, uh, the Aeneid follows, like we said in, in part one, it follows directly after uh, the Iliad. Uh, and a... Uh, a, a character named Aeneas, uh, who was a Trojan. He was the son uh, of a prince of Troy and the goddess Aphrodite. Uh, so that kind of gives you the timeline here. It, we're still talking Greek, but this kind of leads directly into Roman stuff. Uh, he was one of the few tra- Trojans who escaped the Greek invasion, uh, and he, as he fled the city, he formed his own band of... Uh, you know, happy-you-lucky scamps called the Aeneids, uh, and they made their way to the Italian peninsula, where they eventually became the ancestors of the Romans. Um, They traveled for about six years, uh, carrying with them various treasures of Troy, and you can read all about that in the Aeneid. Uh, They stopped off at a bunch of different places, uh, Sicily, for example, uh, as well as Carthage. uh, And in Carthage... Uh, Aeneas had an affair with uh, the Carthaginian... Uh, that's a word I can say. Uh, queen. Carthaginian, my boy. Yeah. The Carthaginian queen known as Dido. Uh, Dido... Uh, basically, what happened is Dido said, Hey, y'all should hang out here in Carthage and this can be your promised land. And uh, Mercury slash Hermes came up and was like, Hey, Aeneas, don't do that. And so they ran away from Carthage, uh, and Dido, you know, being jilted and angry, cursed the Trojans' future, uh, and that is the mythological reasoning behind why the Punic Wars started. Um, it, Checks out. It, it is rumored in the, uh, Aeneid, and, you know, he, here's where, like, uh, fact and fiction start to cross over a little bit, uh, that, Aeneas ends up being the uh, the ancestor of Romulus and Remus, uh, that uh, their mother was a direct descendant of Aeneas. So it's kind of uh, an interesting uh, run through the Aeneid. I, of course, there's way more that I'm not covering, because the Aeneid, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, is fucking long. Yep. Um, but I- if you do want to kind of get a good sense of... Uh, you know, historical fiction slash fact stuff, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid are always worth reading. So check no, us out. It,
1: they're all really good. I, I have read every one of those and I wholeheartedly recommend them. And, you know, we had mentioned it with uh, Caesar's commentaries in a previous episode. Uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, for sure, and I'm pretty sure the Aeneid as well, you can now buy annotated uh, editions mm-hmm. where you have the pages, like the actual text as it's written, and then you have like a half a page of footnotes basically saying, cool, this is what this means. Yeah. <laughs> and there mm-hmm. is absolutely no shame in reading one of those. It helps a lot.
0: Yeah. Um, one of my favorite eras of literature is like classic French literature, you know, uh, Dumas and Hugo and and that kind of, vain. And, uh, as I, I'd like to believe I'm reasonably intelligent, but the first time I read the Count of Monte Cristo, I definitely needed the annotations to figure out what the fuck was going on.
1: Yeah. And I mean, certainly for your first read, I mean, it doesn't have to be your first reading. It could be later on, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with picking it up, reading the annotated edition, then going back to it later on and trying to read it quote unquote in the raw, if you will. Um, I mean, even right now, I'm reading a book. It's a scathing tell-all, DJ, <laughs> on, an, on another one of my favorite loves, uh, Professional Wrestling. But it was written in 1937, I believe. It was written in the mid-30s. I want to say it was 37. And it was the first real widespread work to say, hey, wrestling's fake, you guys. And I'm reading the annotated edition because they just reference so much shit that happened in New York in the '30s that if you don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of Depression-era Manhattan, you don't know what's going on. That's awesome. It's a pretty good book.
0: But yeah, that uh, that takes us out of ancient Roman whiskey. Um, Mark, you wanna wanna take us out?
1: I am sad now, but yes, that is the end. So thank you all for being with us on this journey. Thank you all for listening to us. Uh, We love each and every one of you. Uh, Follow us on your favorite podcast app. We're on basically all the big ones, Spotify, Apple, Podbean, Google, Listen Notes, Amazon, Audible, TuneIn, etc., etc., etc. We're on like 30-some freaking apps. Uh, If you can like us, like us. If you could follow us, follow us. Uh, If you're on Apple and you want to give us a star rating, please, by all means, do. We greatly appreciate it. Helps us get up in the charts, get more noticed. Uh, We're here each and every Friday morning. uh, Pretty, you know, it drops about eight o'clock in the morning, but pretty much by noon, we're on everything. So do check us out. Big shout-out to our boy, you know Henry Silver for the intro and outro. Check out his SoundCloud with all of his works. Check out his Amazon page. He's got two books out now. Dude is just a goddamn overachiever. <laughs> but we love him anyway. Uh, DJ, what are we doing next week? I mean, I, I know, but tell the people.
0: Yeah, so I'm thinking, you know, last episode here, Mark's talked enough. Uh, so I, I have. I figured... Uh, as we close out season four and we gear up for season five, uh, I wanted to just end this season on some recommendations, right? We're solidly in winter here in, up in the northeast uh, of, of the U.S., and uh, it's, it's pretty cold in the northern hemisphere. So I figured we would settle in and just recommend some media that we like maybe some indie games you haven't heard of maybe some books that you haven't read uh, maybe some movies that uh, aren't on the criterion collection but might just make you feel good and I'm sure Mark will find something to debate with me next week so it it should be a good
1: discussion I love you because you always have opinions and I can pretty much guarantee I'm gonna have opinions about your opinions (laughs) it's true So, hey, tune in for that. That is going to be the grandiose season finale of season four. As DJ said last week, I spoiled it. We're going to do a season five. Who the fuck knows what we're going to open with? We'll figure that out. (laughs) But uh, we're going to close up season four next week. We're going to come up with some uh, trailers. I think you and I like the trailers because they don't have to be good. It's true. And, no, and I mean, none of them are. Let's be brutally honest. I would I, I w- I would hazard
0: to say that most of them are not good, but we love doing them anyways.
1: We could be a bit silly with the trailers and we enjoy that. So we're going to come up with, you know, two to five based on previous history. We've done as few as, few as two and as many as five in previous uh, season interludes. So we're going to be somewhere in that range. And then we'll come back with season number five. So uh, stick with us. It's been a hell of a journey. We're God, what? Eighty four episodes now, if you count the trailers. Uh, So we appreciate you sticking with each and every one of us. And we're going to close another chapter, another season next week on the and Whiskey.
0: Yeah. And and we're already talking about some interesting things we can do for season five. So there might be some cool stuff there. Um, But, yeah, stay tuned.
1: I, I, I got some thoughts. He does have thoughts. And unlike the opinions next week, I don't necessarily have opinions on these opinions because <laughs> some of them are okay. <laughs> but hey, until next week for the Witten Whiskey cast, salut. Cheers.